As we began this sermon series a couple of weeks ago, I stated that the intent of it, if someone were to ask, why preach through this now? The intent was lofty, that your households would be indestructible, that your homes would be resilient to the kinds of attacks that the enemy would love to level against you, to rob you of joy, to keep you from bringing the glory and honor to the Lord that you ought. And so I know it's been a weighty ask as we've been studying and praying and asking, Lord, please do something here. And yet, this is what the Lord does. He takes His Word and He helps us. He teaches us. He shows us what it means and exposes things in our own lives. And so that's what I have been praying will happen in this series for the men and women here. The first week, I showed you from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, first two chapters of the Bible, that mankind was made to work to expand and to multiply. That is, work in the garden, even in the sinlessness And the perfection of that Eden that he made, we were supposed to work. And we were supposed to not just work, but but fill the earth, to to subdue the entirety of the earth, to take under our dominion all of animal kind. And so we are to expand that garden. And lastly, to multiply, that means we are to fill the earth. We're going to need workers, laborers along with us to be able to garden and cultivate the entirety of this planet. And that was to be a joint effort by both man and woman. So the first week, we did very little to distinguish between what God said to man and what God said to woman. We kind of just looked at the big picture. This is what we're told we're to do. Last week, beginning with Genesis 2, I argued that all of Scripture confirms that men were designed to lead their wives and that women were designed to follow and submit to their husbands. And so it was last week that we kind of took that one big picture, what we're supposed to go accomplish, and divided that out into two shared responsibilities. Men do this, women do this. But all of the things that we've covered up until this point had taken place in the story, in the text here, in a sinless paradise. And so obviously, because you and I don't live in that paradise, we don't live in Eden, We can't even discuss those events with perfect clarity. We look back at the things that we see in Adam and Eve then, the commandments given by God to humankind. We look back at those, and even those we see through a thick, challenging, uh, uh, corrupted lens. And so today we begin to unpack a little bit of chapter 3, where sin enters into the world. I'm betting that you are familiar with this story, at least the general parts of this. You might even be more familiar with chapter 3 than you are with chapters 1 and 2. That would not be unlikely, I think, to know the story of the serpent in the garden with the fruit and what happened with Adam and Eve. But last week, the story revolved mostly around Adam. He was the key player, it seems, in chapter 2 and what was going down. Eve doesn't even make it into the scene until later in chapter 2. He's on the stage more. This week, the story revolves mostly around the woman. She's going to have the most lines. So the majority of our observations and applications this week will actually be directed towards the women. Ladies, I'm hoping to serve you well in this. There will be some observation and application for the men, but chiefly, I think we're going to see a few things here that apply to our sisters. I'm going to go ahead and read through Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. That's all we're going to cover today. We're barely going to touch on verse 7. 
We'll have to overlap and catch that up next week. But I'm going to read these verses out loud, uh, pray, and then go back through, unpack them. Offer an observation and application for the ladies, an observation and application for the men. So let's go ahead and do that. If you have your Bibles, follow with me, starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. Father, again, it is your mercy we appeal to and ask for help. My goal and desire, Father, is for joy in these homes and glory for yourself as we do the things you've told us to do. Lord, help us to resist worldly lies, to to cling to gospel truths, mostly, first and foremost. And Father, the things that, that make their way into every little facet of our lives and decision of our days, we pray that you would teach us to pursue holiness in all these areas. Lord, use this text to help that. Right now we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Back to verse 1. Let's read that again and unpack it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Here we see the serpent speaking to the woman. Now, much could be said about the serpent, and much can be said. I actually opened up in our theology chat last night. If you're in the signal threads, one of them is the theology chat. And in that one specifically, we just talk about all things of doctrine and theology. I dumped in there that I'm going to put all my notes that didn't make the cut for this sermon uh, into there, because there is so much regarding this serpent. You can learn about the nature of sin, the nature of Satan, deception, what serpent is, that language throughout the entirety of the Bible. I just want to summarize it quickly now so we can see what's going on. I think that this is a natural animal, a snake, that is under the influence of Satan. Not merely Satan himself, you'll notice his name's not even mentioned here, and not merely a natural animal, just on his own, he came up with some idea to bring in pain, discontent, hurt. He is under the influence of Satan, perhaps a little bit like a proto-Antichrist figure. The Antichrist, of course, is talked about in the New Testament times. The New Testament version of this can be found in many places, but just listen to what's said in 2 John 7 about the ones who deceive. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. I think the serpent, in a similar way, is not Satan by himself, but is being under the entire influence of Satan. John Calvin wrote this about that same serpent. He said, for since Satan 
required an instrument, he chose from among animals that which he saw would be most suitable for him. And what was it that Satan would have observed in the serpent that would have made that serpent the most suitable for the task at hand? His craftiness, his cunning. He was clever and shrewd. We might use the words tricky or devious. All of those would rightly describe something about this particular character. Moses here, the author of this particular account, is setting us up to watch his craftiness at work. That's why it's made mention of at the beginning. I'm sure many attributes could have been applied to this particular creature. But we need to be careful to know something's important about his craftiness. You see, the serpent here and Satan himself behind is not ignorant. He's crafty. He knows exactly what he is doing. And you'll notice here, he plays dumb at first, doesn't he? By asking a question that he already knows the answer to. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And that's what he says, any tree. I've heard you haven't been given the right to eat of any tree in the garden. Of course, as many have noted before, the serpent offers a subtle twist on God's word, doesn't he? God did not say that they may not eat of any tree in the garden, and yet that's what the serpent asks. And how does Eve respond? Verses 2 and 3, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And I'll just pause for a moment there. Because up to this point, her response is exactly right. She's correcting a wrong. She's actually saying true things. She is is correctly dealing with those first errors that were heard from the mouth of the serpent. But she doesn't stop there. She continues on. She says, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, why does she add that? If you had been here last week, you would have heard when we read through that account. You may already know that God did say in Genesis 2, 17, uh, as he delivers the law and consequence to Adam, that they were not to eat of the fruit of that one singular tree. There's nothing about touching it. He did mention the other trees in the garden and, and vocally advocated. You may eat of all those, just not this one. Why does Eve add this? We cannot be certain, because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why she does it, even if we can guess. Here's what we do know. God did not forbid them from touching the fruit. That was an addition to His Word. And while it may seem subtle or insignificant, it is important to notice how Eve is adding to God's Word here. We should be cautioned from doing the same. But follow the point of this, where it goes. Because what does Satan say next? Does he go, oh, sorry, we'll have a have at it and go on? No. Verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. This is the first lie told in the history of the Bible. They would die. In fact, all of us now die owing to this moment. There's actually something else going on with the language here you might find interesting to take a look at, and it tells us something about the nature of this serpent a little bit more and his craftiness. 
When God tells Adam of the consequence for eating of the fruit, he says that they shall surely die. I'll read for you Genesis 2.17. You can look up your page or over to the left, wherever it is for you, and, and follow along there in verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall, and if you look at your Bibles there, uh, you'll see, surely die. That actually could be translated in Hebrew as just saying, die, die. Because it's a doubling down of that kind. Of, it's, a, it's a certainly you will die. That's kind of the language. It's, 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 really, it's not just going, you will die. You will surely die. If there's any part of your mind that's thinking, well, I, I can overcome it. No, you will surely die is what was said by God when he delivered this. Now, when Eve repeats the law, when the serpent asks her about it in the previous verse, when she repeats the law, she does not say surely die. She just says, God says we will die. But here, now, the serpent does say just what God said. Look what the the serpent said. You will not surely die. You will not die, die. Why? Why is this important? The serpent is more accurate than Eve on this one. This is evidence, for the record, that this serpent knew God's law. This wasn't a, I'm so curious about how you humans do your interacting with God. No, no, he knew. And he knew to include this. He knew the rule. In fact, it sounds like he even knew it better than Eve In fact, we're going to see that a little bit later when we get to next week, we'll be able to, or perhaps the week after, unpack a little more about the knowing good and evil, what will happen to them after they eat of it. He knows something about what's going to happen here. He is not ignorant at all. Here's just a quick point I don't want to miss as we just kind of make our way through this here, because it's going to be critical for us in so many areas of our life. Knowing God's Word accurately is crucial. You and I both know it is possible for somebody to nitpick over particular word uses and things like that and in, as they're seeking to interpret something in the Bible. It is possible for somebody to do that. Yeah, of course. But precision does matter because words mean things. The imprecision with which Eve regards God's word in this conversation grants the serpent a strategic advantage in this exchange. So he lies to her. The first lie ever leveled at a person in the history of existence. And how does the woman reply? What does the woman say in response to this lie? The answer? Nothing. She's done talking. Her her lines are finished for Genesis 3. She's done. She'll only speak one more time in an excuse. She's not going to talk back to the serpent. She says nothing in reply. Instead, this is what she does. Look at the verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So rather than reply, rather than contradict that wily serpent, rather than correct his statement, or even to realize what was going on, she fell for that temptation. She believed the lie and acted. And you'll notice she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Who made it that way? Well, God did. 
She saw that it was desirable. Who made it that way? God did. But he told her not to eat of it, and here she does. But then we read something that the way that it's written and put in here seems like it's the way that it's written, like if you're just to read it quickly, it's, it kind of feels like an almost insignificant kind of little point that was added on after the fact. Almost as though Moses, who's writing these things for the people of God to read in perpetuity, like Moses' wife leans over his shoulder and goes, don't forget to add this part. Oh yeah, I'll put that in. Because it says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's a significant point to be said in such a seemingly insignificant way. But here's what we see by it. Not only did she eat, he did too. Even though Eve has all the lines in the scene, now we see that Adam has been on stage the whole time, in some way. They both ate, they both sinned. And now, people die, nations fall, illness and age ravage our bodies, wars consume humankind, Abuse and neglect pummel households. Cancer and malice, murder and hatred are the result of this event. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In summary, without even hearing a rebuke to follow, they already felt shame because they knew what they had done. We'll unpack this a bit more next week because God will speak to this a bit. For now, I want you to just consider some observations and then applications from this text. Next week, we will certainly have to unpack what happens after they sin and how that impacts their marriages, our marriages even today. But consider just these two observations with me might seem quite obvious. First one is this. The serpent deceived the woman. The serpent deceived the woman. That's pretty obvious. Eve was the first person in the history of the world to have ever been lied to. She was the target of Satan's first deception. Now, Satan, Working in some way, influencing, motivating this serpent, Satan is known as the deceiver, the one who lies. He's the father of lies. He's been lying. He's been murdering since the beginning. Jesus would even say as much. But if you were to get to the end of the Bible and still not quite be sure what to do with this serpent character, if you were to read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and just keep going through, just from beginning to end throughout the entirety of the Bible... If you still had not quite figured out that this was not uh, the unique and isolated act by some random creature that happened to be wandering in the garden on that particular day, by the time you get to the last book of the Bible, it should be made very clear. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is the only passage in the Bible that directly connects Satan by name with the serpent, and he's likewise here called the deceiver, and there shouldn't be any question for us at this point now. This was always a plan from the beginning. It won't be utterly and fully finally dealt with until the end. 
And this is what Satan does. He lies. Jesus says of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth incarnate, the word of God. Satan is the deceiver, the father of lies. When Satan had decided to attack God's prized creation and was selecting his weapon, he knew that deception was his best possible tact. And he selected the serpent on account of his craftiness. Because that serpent, in some way, by Satan's observation, was particularly suited for the task of deceiving the woman. And so he doesn't choose the elephant because it's the heaviest. He doesn't choose the draft because it's the tallest. He doesn't choose, you get it? He chooses the serpent because he, Satan, he perceives that the serpent will be particularly helpful with deception. Sisters, from this point, I just want to speak directly to you for a little bit today. I want for you, my Christian sisters, to be especially aware of this today. Throughout the entirety of the Bible, the Bible warns men to not be deceived. And it tells us stories about men who have been deceived and who have done deceiving. So yes, men certainly can lie and be lied to, absolutely. What we get from Genesis 3 and the later retellings of this account is a particular warning to women regarding deception. I'm going to show you one of these in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 13 and 14 says this. In a moment, we'll put one of these up on the screen as I get to another point. But listen carefully to this language from the Apostle Paul. He writes this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, so we're thinking of the creation account. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is Paul's short summary of the event that we just read through in Genesis 3. Real short. And notice how Paul is taking this fact of ancient history and showing that it has meaning for his day and by extension ours. In that passage, he actually goes on to explain why women are not permitted to be pastors, teachers with authority over men in the church. We'll actually take a look at that verse later in our study, uh, in our sermon series, because I think it'll be helpful to unpack. But for today, notice how he references that fact that Eve was the first to be deceived. In fact, technically, in the garden account, she was the only one to be deceived. The serpent deceived the woman. Now, you may know that some people see this as evidence, this language, Genesis 3, uh, especially 1 Timothy 2, retelling of it, that this is evidence that women are naturally more susceptible to lies than men. There's a natural gullibility in women that's not present in men. I think much could be said about here, about this idea. But I don't think that what we're supposed to learn from Genesis 3 is that women are more likely to believe lies than men. I don't think that's the case. It is undeniable that man is a sinner too. When he first was offered the fruit, he took it. There wasn't much resistance from Adam's part. And men will go on to hear and fall to lies repeatedly throughout the Bible. So if I were to make that claim, which I'll I'll try to explain in a moment, I don't think that we're to understand this as meaning that women are more gullible than men. Why then did the serpent target the woman? Why her? 
It wasn't as though the serpent looked at man and woman and said, well, he won't believe the lie. I can't get him to eat the fruit. Clearly, that wasn't the problem. But I can get to her. I think there's something else going on. I think that the serpent approaches the woman to undermine God's created order. Satan did not approach the man, that's for sure. Even if Adam was present at the time, if he was literally right next to Eve, it's hard to picture, we don't know exactly how close with means, other side of the bush over there, with his shovel in hand, you know, cultivating until she goes over or calls him over or something. We don't know exactly, but he's present in some way. And yet he is never addressed by the serpent directly, ever. The serpent speaks to Eve and not to Adam. And this should not be missed. The man was designed to lead his household. He was designed to be the head of his wife, as I showed you from Ephesians chapter 5 last week. But in this account, the fact that the serpent intentionally goes after the woman is no accident. He intentionally subverts God's created order. And enemies of God's people often use this same tactic. Later, Paul writes again to Timothy in another letter, 2 Timothy 3, 6-7. through He says this, uh, this about false teachers. He says about these false teachers, they are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Here's the point. Because the woman was designed to follow and submit to her husband, for a man to exploit that design feature for his own wicked purposes is especially dishonorable. Get that? And so here, this subversion and undermining of the one who was to be in submission is especially dishonorable in this first lie. By point of application, sisters, be on guard for lies. Be on guard. And you need to know that worldly influences today do the exact same thing the serpent did in the garden. The exact same thing. This is not as though Satan did a victory lap realizing how successful that lie was in the garden and set that kind of lie up on a shelf to be enshrined and never used again in humankind. No, it became a go-to tool throughout the ages, and it's still living and active in our day. Worldly influences today do this exact same thing. I think that the feminist movement in the last 200 years has been an atrocious mess in the West and has led to some of the greatest calamities of our day. Every single benchmark in that movement has sought to do this very thing, to undermine God's created order of the household. All of the benchmarks have been designed to undermine God's created plan for the household. The push to get women out of the home and into the workplace the legalization of no-fault divorce, the implementation of child support laws, the driving mantra of the feminist movement, we don't need men, incentivizes the destruction of the household. If you leave him, we'll pay you. 
Each of these lies seizes upon a half-truth. A half-truth. By highlighting a genuine problem. Some men abuse, some men neglect, some men leave the home. So because of these things, they offer a deceptive solution. The way to fix the inevitable problems in the home is to burn down the house. Those lies have worked since the beginning. Do you know that somewhere between 70 and 80% of divorces in America are initiated by women? This is a direct result, I believe, of the intentional lies pointed at our sisters. The feminist movement in the West has furiously advanced this agenda to remove women from the home, from under their husband's provision and protection. But there has always been an enormously obvious, obvious hurdle for them to overcome. Kids. If babies are what is keeping women in the home, there is one inevitable solution. Do whatever it takes to remove the, pra- remove the problem, even if it means kill the babies. You need to know the entire abortion movement is a direct application of the feminist agenda. It is why it exists, to remove an obstacle that is keeping women from competing with men in the marketplace. That is what it was for. And it's why today, if you say anything against the sacred institution of abortion today, you are considered anti-women's rights. I think that Few things are more detestable to God in our day than abortion, and it is true that this is one lie, this is one of the modern lies that is believed more by women than men. Did you know that today a higher percentage of women are pro-choice than men in in the West? It may not be surprising to you. Even more staggering, this month in the election cycle that we just went through for midterms, 72% of women under 30 voted for pro-abortion candidates this month. 72%. 2% of women under 30 voted for pro-abortion candidates. Why? I don't think that women hate life more than men. I don't think that women love death more than men. But it is undeniable that women believe this lie more than men do. Why? I think the reason women fall to this particular lie more than men is not intrinsic gullibility, but for the same reason that more men die from gunshot wounds than do women. More bullets are fired at men, and this particular lie is aimed more at women than at their brothers. Now, there will certainly be more mundane ways in which you are especially targeted in ways unique over and above your brothers, but this one is horrendous. Ladies, you may know this one as well. Women are the chief consumers in the home. 70 to 80% of household money spent around the globe is spent by women. It's been this way for generations. And this holds true across cultures. This is not an American study. This is everywhere. 70 to 80% of household funds are spent by the women. Why? Why? Because women just like stuff more? No. For the obvious reason. Because women represent multiple markets in one. Because around the world even more so in other parts of the world than here now. Women buy 
not only for themselves, but for their children and their husbands and extended family. Women buy lots of stuff, and this is not at all surprising. I actually think that's a wonderful thing. For the record, I think that makes total sense to me according to the biblical models. But what does this mean? Why is that significant? Ladies, here's why. You should expect that more lies in the marketplace will be aimed at you than at your men. Why? Because they're trying to get the money you are spending. You, You get this? Now, why bring up these things from abortion to shoes and advertisement? Because I want to prompt you sisters to be acutely aware of just how prevalent these lies are so that you learn not to fall for any of them. So that you don't become complacent to lies that may seem mundane and not super, uh, super significant in one place. Which might lower your guard when it comes to lies in a much broader sense. I once had a, a godly older woman uh, speak to my, my wife and I about how she uh, shepherded her kids when she'd take them to the grocery store. And they'd come up past the, uh, the checkout counter. And the children would say, Mommy, Mommy, Tic Tacs, can we get Tic Tacs? And she, and she would turn to the children, she told us this, rather than just saying, no, we don't need Tic Tacs, she'd go, do you know why they put those there? To trick you into thinking that's why you came to the store. They know that while you're on the way out is the most likely way. That's what, there are, they're on the shelf back there. They put them here to trick you. Now, listen, there might be a little bit of extra cynicism sprinkled in there. But that godly woman raised daughters who became acutely aware of the fact that even product placement had a reason, and they became skeptical of the lies that come in this world. Wonderful, godly Christian women today, and I think in large part because of that kind of caution. Sisters, I want you likewise to be acutely aware of lies and to not follow one for a moment. And before we move on from this idea, I want you to especially not neglect to see the nature of the first lie, because it continues to be particularly effective. The first lie told to the woman was that God was withholding something good from her. That was the nature of the lie. The serpent did not come out and go, oh, this is going to poison you. This is going to kill you. Lots of pain and disconnect, discontent. In fact, for the rest of your days, it's going to be awful if you take it, but I think you should. That's not what the serpent did. He told her, there's something good your God is keeping from you. And you and I together can conspire a better plan than the one that he has. You see? That was the nature of the first lie told to Eve. Sisters, get ready for Satan to do the same in your home. Get ready for it. The same lie that what God wants for you is worse than what you want for you. That there's something better for you than obedience to him. That there's something more joy-giving than submitting to all that the word tells you to be. That you can do a better job coming up with a plan for your life than he can. You've got to see this, sisters, because the day will certainly come where you will be tempted to respond to God's words in the same way as your mother Eve. You need to be guarded from that. You need to resist that. You need to war against it. As we get further into the series, we are going to unpack some specific ways. I hope to get even more applicational, like try to get down to the details of what, what this means. How can we see this play out in our lives? How can we resist lies that come in? We're going to unpack God's plan for Christian wives and mothers, but for now I want to summarize this for your sake, sisters. I do not believe that you are necessarily more susceptible to lies than your brothers in general. 
But I do believe that many of the lies in our culture are aimed at you and at the particular weaknesses that do accompany femininity. I do think that's the case. Do not believe those lies. Not one of them. Not for a moment. And just to encourage you in this, you need to know this is the enemy's only weapon to use against you. It's all he has. He has not been given the authority to tackle you to the ground and make you sin. All he can do is whisper. Did you think about this? That the New Testament tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How? How can he do that to Christians? Deception. The same way he did it in the garden. This means, ladies, his effectiveness is directly tied to your willingness to hear his lie. He will be as effective as you let him be. And how you relate to those lies. Know the truth. Hate the lies. Mothers, raise your daughters to laugh at the lies of the world. To see the folly of them. To expose them. Say, Wait, they believe what? They think that will make me happy? They think that's what will produce joy? They think that's what God wants? Teach your daughters to celebrate being wives and mothers and helpers of their husbands, disciple makers of the next generation. Young women, unmarried, unmarried women of any age here, listen. Learn godly standards. Don't let the world tell you what you should want in a man. Ask God what he would want for you in a man someday. Stick to those standards, sisters. And learn to sniff out a lie, to sniff out deception, and have nothing to do with it. We must teach our daughters to reject both abusive men and weak men, to show them how they can be resilient to every one of the deceptions coming from the enemy. Proverbs 31, 25 says this about the godly woman. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Why? Because she won't believe one lie. Men, observation for you. Adam is held responsible for this first sin. Adam is held responsible for this first sin. I want you to think about this. Eve sins first, but Adam is held responsible for how that sin affects humanity. I'll I'll put 1 Timothy 2 up right now. This is where I read this out loud before. 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14 says, For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So who sinned first? I think according to this, I think the woman sinned first. Who took the bite of the fruit first? The woman took it first. Deceived or not, she became a transgressor. She was, in fact, deceived. But who is held responsible for this? Is the mantra of the Christian faith, all the women, no, no. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Who is responsible for this event? Adam. Adam is responsible. This is why, as we'll see next week, 
The first words spoken by God in Genesis 3 are directly to Adam. Where are you? He knows what's going down. Why does he go to the man first? It is his responsibility. It will be on his head. The application, of course, then, brothers, is that whatever happens in your home, you are responsible for it. You are responsible for it. I think it's hard for us to understand because even if we acknowledge certain things from previous chapter, we conflate the idea of fault and responsibility. Last week we read through chapter 2, I showed that by God's created order, the man is to lead his wife, uh, he is to be her head, as we, we talked about already. Adam was right there. He was with her and did nothing. At the very least, we know that when he first heard the lie, he followed his wife rather than leading her out of that sin. And that language is actually used. He listened to the voice of his wife instead of listening to God's word. It'll say that later in chapter 3 of Genesis. Brothers, even your wife's sin is your responsibility. Your responsibility. It's important for us to realize the difference between responsibility and fault. And there is no place that we can see this more perfectly on display than in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you don't know the summary of our gospel, you need to know that because of Genesis 3, you and I have now been born into a fallen and broken world. We are sinners like our first parents. We sin against God. We break His law. And because of that, as a consequence, we, just like Adam and Eve, die. Death spread to all men because all sin. That's you and me. That's you and me. You know, you know how you know you're a sinner under the judgment of God because of what you've done? You're going to die. That's how. But God loved us so much that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He sent his perfect and only son into this world demonstrating for us his love. Jesus lived a perfect life, the only man who didn't follow in the footsteps of Adam and continuing to sin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He's the only one who's ever lived that didn't deserve by this death. And yet, he was hung upon a cross, beaten, spat upon, mocked, and murdered. Why? Why? For whose sins? For ours. For all who would ever believe in him. Jesus, though not at fault for any sins, put upon his shoulders the sins of his bride. That's what he did. He bore responsibility for the sins of the bride of Christ, his church. And if you repent of your sins today and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, your sins will be among those counted on the shoulders of our perfect bridegroom Christ that he dealt with, took responsibility for, And just as he died but rose again three days later, you too can have eternal life, be raised to new life. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to him. It is your only hope. And our perfect bridegroom will take responsibility for those things. And he continues in the rest of our days as the church to wash us with the word. Brothers, do this for your wives. Wash her with the water of the word, as it says in Ephesians 5. Teach her the truth of God. You know, Eve was not yet created when God delivered the law with the consequence in Genesis 2. Yet Eve knew the law. How? Well, by implication, we can guess that Adam taught his wife God's word. What we don't know is why she was imprecise. 
Was that because of his failure in teaching, her failure in holding fast to that teaching? I'd be slow to call anything their failure. I don't think sin had yet entered into the world until that moment. But here's what we do know. Even though she ate the fruit first, he was responsible. He was. I think it's impossible to know what would have went down if the moment she walked up with the fruit, he's like, hey, what do you got there? Whoa! And slapped it out of her hand. Turned to the serpent and said, uh, excuse me, can I help you? We, have, we can't imagine what would have happened. Why? Because he's equally a sinner. And he likewise fell. Brothers, establish yourself as a responsibility bearer and a teacher of truth in your household. I'll speak briefly to these two things in closing. Engage with the home. Serve your family in a way that only you can by leading them rightly. Bear responsibility for your home. Your wife is equally responsible for her own sins. When she sins, she is responsible to God for those sins. When you sin, you are responsible to God for those sins. But, but... The man and the woman are not equally responsible for what happens in the home. You men are chiefly responsible for the domain you've been given. The responsibilities in this way are not equivalent. And you ought to carry that with great concern. When the serpent approached Eve, Adam should have done something. He should have engaged, and he didn't. And men, since that moment, have been passively standing by and letting the enemy attack. They're women ever since, ever since that day. Continues to our moment. Brothers, engage. Don't be passive. Step in. Take responsibility. Do it more and more and more. Learn to do it well. Men also become the family expert in God's word. I mean that very seriously. Brothers, brothers, men, if you are a husband, father in here, listen carefully. If you aspire to this, you need to become the family expert in God's word. Now, real quick, if your wife is farther ahead than you in this area, she's got more schooling, more learning, she's been a Christian for longer, maybe she's just way smarter than you and she just picks up on stuff better. Maybe she just has the capacity to invest more time and energy into studying the Word of God. If that's the case, the solution is not, slow down, honey. The solution is catch up quickly. Praise God for a godly wife that sets that bar high. But it is your responsibility to wash her with the water of the Word in a way that is unique to men. Brothers, catch up quick. And if she stays ahead of you, then you keep learning to run faster and faster. You find ways to catch up. And what a glorious effort to outdo one another in honor. <laughs> Pursuing a love and trust in the Word of God more. Imagine the, the force to be reckoned with that couple becomes by the end of their days. Men, train your sons to take responsibility for themselves and others around them. Train your sons to take responsibility for themselves. Do not let them harbor excuses. Help them deal with passivity. Become active. I was at Chick-fil-A yesterday with my son getting some of the Lord's chicken. My son was there with me ordering, and he's kind of shy. And so standing before the, 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 the woman who's taking our order, and I said, why don't you tell her? And he looked at me like kind of panicked because I didn't tell him before we got in, you're going you're gonna to order. We don't go out to eat very often. And he like looked at me and I was like, nope, you're doing it. You're doing it. There are plenty of 
helpful little ways that we can encourage our sons to not stay passive, but learn how to be gentlemen and God-honoring leaders of households someday. Young men, if you can hear this right now, if you're a young man not yet married, listen carefully. Practice taking responsibility. Find something to bring under your responsibility and make it flourish. Cultivate it. Find what that thing is. Take responsibility for it. You have a pet? Don't ever, 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 ever have your parents again have to take that pet on a walk or clean up its messes and stuff like that. You take responsibility. Find a way to do that. So many little ways you can practice this now so that the first day of responsibility isn't the day after your wedding, okay? In fact, you probably shouldn't get that far in the process unless you can demonstrate you have some level of responsibility. One of the reasons that fathers want to know that young suitors for their daughters have a good job is not just so they can have the money to provide for her. She likes shoes. No, there's way more than this. We want you to demonstrate that you are a responsible man. Young brothers, take responsibility seriously. There's no time to do this today, but we are so many things I hope to uncover and walk through in upcoming weeks about how a man ought to exercise his responsibility in the home. How is that done in a way that is right and honoring, not in a way that is either abusive or neglectful? Women, what do you do if there's a situation where it seems like he's leading you towards sin? How do, how do you deal with that then? How, how is a woman to follow if he's leading poorly? And for the record, he's leading poorly. We're going to deal with those things in upcoming weeks. I'm very much looking forward to walking through those things. But I will say this, brothers, before I end this part. All of that depends on you first embracing the fact that you are responsible, responsible for your home. Closing, sisters, resist worldly lies. And embrace God's plan for your life. Men, reject passivity and embrace responsibility. Let's pray. Father, we love and trust your word. We need help every day to do this better, to have full-blown major corrections where they're there. God, just little refinements when we're, we're not quite lining up just right. Help from fellow brothers and sisters. Help from your word. Good counsel from those who've been much further down these paths than we have been. Lord, so please use all of these measures to bring joy into our homes that brings you great glory. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.